This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by Amazon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, uh, we are into December. Uh, the weather's changing, which, of course, can have an impact on worker safety and health. Uh, but there are steps that you can take and tools you can use to help address these issues, which is going to be our topic of conversation today. And uh, I'm very excited to welcome someone who uh, knows a great deal about this subject, is going to share his uh, experience and expertise. He is Victor Rodriguez, operations meteorologist at Amazon. Victor, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Scott. Excited to be here and excited to talk about weather and meteorology at Amazon. Excited to dive in. No, uh, on on that subject, I thought that would be kind of a, a good place to start to kind of, you know, give folks uh, an overview of your role and more so, you know, how how your role fits into safety, you know, and helping, you know, create safer workplaces. Okay, that's a lot, especially when you're dealing with a company of Amazon side. You know, there's a lot that you cover there from ground operations to when we think about transport, we talk about that last mile delivery, but you also have that last hundred feet, you know, you deal with slip balls. We all know that, especially as safety professionals. Um, so what I like to say is where I work at right now is we're the nexus between operations and business, right? We're that connection piece. We try to plan, mitigate, and recover from impactful weather events to ultimately make sure everything is safe for our employees and our delivery partners. That is our goal at the end of the day. And then for me, what I come to is we try to come from the best in class. How can we make this a best in class service from a proactive mitigation and adapting to potentially disruptive weather events? That's really where I come in. Okay, now let's let's dive a little deeper into that. You know, your role in helping you prepare for winter weather as as it gets, you know, colder and wetter and snowier outside, how you, you know, the policies and procedures you have in place to help prepare for that. There's a lot from like a de design and an engineering standpoint. So I'll, I'll hit on some of them. So from an operational standpoint, we do have advanced uh, weather modeling. So we have a team of data scientists that are meteorologists that they have, they ingest global models and that comes to us and gives us risk signals. From an operational standpoint, I've got forecasted experience, about 20 years now across the globe. So what I do is I look for uh, risk signals for early and advanced detection of disruptive weather. That sounds like a lot of words. Essentially, what I'm doing is models take you in an accuracy, a weather forecast model. Generally, when you're about five days out, you're looking at about a 85% accuracy, and that just degrades from there. So what I come in is, as an operational meteorologist, I look to extend that risk signal, give us a certainty in that seven to 10 day window. So for example, this winter storm that's about to push through you guys through uh, the Midwest this weekend, I've been talking about that for about a week now. So that's where we really extend that risk signal. And then another thing from a industry standpoint is how do we access exposure and vulnerability? So not just climate exposure and geography, but for example, locations that are near coastal regions that are susceptible to flooding that could be impactful to drivers or vulnerabilities. Um, whether it's vehicle type vulnerability or personnel vulnerability, such as human factors for temperature or challenging routes. That's what we deal with right now when you get into rural routes. Long story short, all of that requires some kind of solve. 
So whether it's we have critical weather thresholds as a matter of policy where we're assessing certain levels of uh, weather thresholds and how we're going to reduce or mitigate that through operational change. I Meaning, are we going to adjust drivers' routes? Are we going to make reductions? That's done by operations planning teams. But then we have the mitigation equipment and gear. So we have about 8,000 professionals across Amazon, and some of those are industrial hygienists and workplace health safety. So I work with them on where can we allocate resources such as snow chains, ice cleats for, again, slip trips and falls. Um, where could we see potential long-term impacts from climate change and the heat impacts, for example, like we saw this year in Phoenix? So that's a whole lot. It's a, that's a, we look at an enterprise-wide approach. You touched uh, on it a little bit there, but I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about those technological innovations, infrastructure uh, improvements, you know, to improve the, you know, your winter weather safety and, and logistics for, for employees. So we have initiatives where we're actually testing different vehicles and uh, snow and ice climates. So we're doing testing phase of that to see which ones perform the best and how we can get to those challenging terrain. Another thing is we have technologies such as communication tools with our employees that are working in the facilities and then our delivery partners that are out on the road. So we're trying to constantly keep them updated of what the weather events are going, and that requires quick communication. So we have communication tools, programs. I'm a program, for example, operational meteorologist. So that's where I come into it. And like I said, we also have a team of data scientists. We get advanced modeling from the ECMWF, the European model, and then we use National Weather Service high-resolution models that are ingested into all of the programs and plan teams here. Great segue into my next question. I'm sure, and you, you've noted a, a couple of, of, of examples that this is really a, a collaborative effort. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit, you know, the, the different teams you work with. Yeah, I know you've mentioned a couple, but the different teams you work with to prepare for winter weather, you know, what each of those teams do and you know, the, the tools they have at their disposal to, you know, make sure everybody's able to do their job safely. So I could talk about, a, there's quite a bit of the teams, but I'll talk about the ones that I work with a lot. So on my team here with the Contingency Response Center, there's a group of us program managers that are working all across. So we have one that works on global parity, how we can make this a global model at our response to plan, recover, and mitigate from events. We have another program manager that works on integrating the tools and services that we use. So the communication tools that I spoke with, we have, he works on those. And then you have me that works on, I work with the industrial hygienist, uh, global road safety team. So I'll give you an idea. So industrial hygienist to make sure that we have the right thresholds in the right place, we're using the right standards. Our global road safety teams, again, to make sure we have the right thresholds for what is out there operating in the vehicle and for the exposure of our personnel. And then a meeting with our workplace health and safety. So we're figuring out exact, I'll give you an example, air scrubbers for poor air quality. That's very important. So making sure those are in the right places or snow chains for deliveries in like Colorado and those Utah regions or ice cleats for, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, we also have cold weather gear. So when we're getting down into those negatives and that's going to start coming here in the next few weeks. So we also have cold weather gear and those teams, you know, working with them to find out again, how can we best allocate it? So I use climate maps. I use 50, 20 and 10 year climate maps to figure out what those trends are, what we can expect to see where we need, we need to put more resources. On that note, I mean, 
this is, you know, it's all about staying ahead of the weather and having all the right things in place to make sure everybody can do their job safely. And I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, examples of ice cleats, things like that. But I wonder if you kind of share any examples of how, you know, this forecasting, you know, has helped prevent incidents or, or disruptions to, to operations in the past. Sure. I can give you a, a few examples. So one of them was Winter Storm Elliot. I know National Weather Service doesn't name them, but if I name it, everybody will know, is the winter storm right around Christmas last year. So what we did is we noticed that some of the models were missing on picking up some of that snow in the Buffalo region. I started communicating with some of the programs managers at my current business unit, and they were actually able to take proactive action to basically reduce operations where we needed to, and then actually be able to mitigate some of the stuff. So I'll give you an example. New York closed some of the roads, which didn't necessarily impact PA, but impacted interstate transit. So as an example, where we were able to identify this would be a pain point, and then that team was able to monitor the road conditions and be able to mitigate that in advance. Another one is uh, Hurricane Ian. 10 days out, we were forecasting that, and we were tracking the basically the direction of where that was going to hit. About seven days out, while the models were going a little bit crazy, we were kind of fine-tuning and tracking for that Tampa area to get hit. That allowed us to put communications four or five days out in advance and then to operationally plan in that three to four-day window. So that's an example where we extend that forecast range window because we remove a lot of that uncertainty by having an operational meteorologist within that 96-hour window where you can really refine forecasting. I'm I'm glad you mentioned hurricanes there. And, I, and you talk about the dangers faced in coastal communities as well as others, but, you know, in those extreme cases, you know, what, what are the protocol, you know, during those type of weather events? And it's really an awesome process to see uh, take place. So what ends up happening is when we're within a, basically a five-day window, we start communicating. When I say communicating, we're communicating with what we call first mile and middle mile, and then your last mile. So we're getting all the players in there from the facilities to your uh, interstate travel to those last mile travel and what we're all doing at that point is we call we start escalating figuring out where we have the most exposure where we have the most vulnerability and we begin communicating with managers in those regions to be able to plan so we basically do that at a daily cadence where we're responding to any updates in the models any updates to government road closures because that is a big impact for us I mentioned the situation that we had with the winter storm, a lot of road closures. And you even have some situations, I'll go back to the hurricane, where if you don't even have snow chains, you're not allowed to pass through. So those those are things you have to be considering. Uh, when you get into the hurricanes, a lot of road closures and things that you can have airport foreclosures, we call them cascading impacts, right? So if you have an airport closure, that could impact one of your upstream. So we have to be accounting for all that. What that really entails is just getting everybody, like I said, enterprise solutions and basically coordinating as one team, one entity. It's actually really awesome to see. Staying on that, you've talked about, you know, the tire chains, the ice cleats, things like that. But take me through the process, you know, with equipment, vehicles, resources, you know, to making sure that they've got all the all the equipment, the resources they need to do it safely. Now, for us, what we're doing is we are monitoring. And when I say monitoring, Again, we're doing the weather, and it's not just weather. We don't just do hazards. I do hazards and weather, but this team that I'm part of, there's threats, protests, things like that, that everybody's monitoring. So it's, again, old closures, significant things that may impact um, some of our drivers. 
And we're even looking at our employees when they're commuting to and from home, because that's something that we realized during these hurricanes is, hey, this region may not be closed, but there's a whole area that is shut off or there's either impassable. So those are things that we take into account. Sure. Uh, and and staying on that, you know, we talked about coastal areas, rural areas. I wonder if there are other areas that have those unique challenges or, you know, considerations that you have to think about and you know, how you how you address those in your your planning and forecasting. OK, yeah. So that is a challenging one, because when you get into weather models or even severity, and I'll break down some cases. So weather models, you have global weather models, you have regional weather models, and then you have even smaller scale weather. Each one of them have their own bias, and I'm trying to not get too technical, or resolution scales. Like if you think about a TV, right? The more megapixels you have, the better the image. So on models, it's the same thing. If you have it, but it's lower. So if you have a lower kilometer resolution, that means you have a finer scale of your model. Where this comes into play is, like you mentioned, the complex terrain. You can have a facility, for example, let me just throw out in the Rockies. Or Seattle's another good example uh, because they have such complex rain. You could have one location that might be at sea level or maybe at a thousand feet in like Colorado or Utah, but within a mile or two mile range, you can have somewhere that's about 2000 feet higher. That becomes challenging for models to handle. So how do I handle that? That's where you get into the industry expertise. I understand a lot of the model weaknesses and then a lot of times using climatology to understand how is that terrain going to be influential. So for example, we had winter storm warnings. You've seen them all over for Seattle this past weekend. I knew that most of that snowfall was me confined about 6,000 feet and above. So that allows me to go in there and then be able to assess our risk. So for example, at mountain passes, but in Seattle proper, we are more concerned with rain. That's one of the challenges. And then when you get into the international level, severity. So Germany, I believe they have severe winds within the 45 mile an hour range, whereas here in the United States, it's a 58 mile an hour range. The reason is, is because you have different exposures and vulnerabilities. I've said that a few times, but when you talk about cities and countries and government infrastructure, they also have their exposure vulnerabilities. So I can give an example. We had a uh, tropical storm Maria destroyed Puerto Rico, but then you can have a uh, category two typhoon or hurricane push through Japan and they recover a little bit quicker. It has to do with basically how they built up their infrastructure. So those are challenges that I deal with where you have to, as a meteorologist, know when I see a severe warning in Germany, what does that actually translate to versus one in the United States? I imagine you, it may be uh, for, you know, companies, organizations, maybe if they may not be able to bring on their own meteorologists, but just, you know, weather impacts so many different working environments for people to, you know, be cognizant of what's going on with the weather and how that's going to impact their business. And you know, especially this time of year, bringing more of a focus to that and how they can, uh, you know, plan and prepare to help keep their workforce safe during all these weather changes? Yeah. What I would say is I'm always a big proponent of the National Weather Services. So people are always searching for information. Your apps on your phone, they're solid. They're going to get you about 95 to 97% within 24 hours. But realize by that four-day mark, five-day mark, we never retrospectively go back and look at what it said. But I've tracked them and those things are off. And it's nothing other than that's what they're there for. They're there for an automated decision that you use. And that's what I want to get into. If you need and you're dealing with complex weather, I would say go to the National Weather Service. Look at your local forecast. 
for example, with today in Seattle, I was looking at the flood river stages all across the region because I have some concern in the northern region, the river that we we're talking about, the atmospheric river. So I was looking at that and I was looking at the local observations. That's all through the National Weather Service. So instead of giving a provider or paying a provider or a vendor or something like that, I always tell people, go to your National Weather Service. And then a little gee whiz with weather. So a lot of people say, well, the weather guy is always wrong. He tells me it's going to be 30% or 50%. He's not telling you it's a flip of a coin on whether you're going to get rain. What that forecast is telling you, what he or she is telling you is they're saying, if you're in the Seattle area, 50% of that area will get some rain coverage today. So a lot of people get mad at the forecasters and then you know, it's not that they're inaccurate. It's they're using probabilities and things like that. So do coverage area, but that is actually good. So when people hear that, they say, oh, okay, let's then look at that better. And that's really at the core of what we do as meteorologists is give people contextual information. And I'll give you an example that is really crazy. I read a research paper on weather impacts. It was a one-page paper on the, using the terminology to wear a sweater in the shade or wear covering in the shade. And when he thought about it, if you've ever been out on a day where the sun's there and you're warm and then you get in the shade and you start shivering, somebody did the work to do that as a meteorologist to say, how do we communicate this to people? So that's one thing that I want to stress is as meteorologists, we're there to communicate and contextualize what that risk looks like. Absolutely. It's good for everybody, everybody to remember. Uh, any final thoughts you'd like to to add about preparing for the winter weather, how we can help keep everybody safe? First thing as far as preparing, just to be aware of your location, because some places are going to get more snow in December, some more in January. Or if you're in Kansas, for example, you are susceptible to ice storms, snowstorms. You're like right in the middle of that. So I would say understanding what your exposure is, where you are at, and being able to prepare for that. That's That's the best thing. If you know where you're exposed, then you can actually plan for and mitigate. Absolutely. It's important for everybody to remember it, it, it's all in the world of safety. It's all about knowing the risk and that that applies to to the weather as well. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much again for for coming on, Victor. It's a, a lot of great information for everybody to keep in mind in the, the coming months as uh, we get uh, cold and icy to, to help keep everybody safe. So thank you again. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org. We'll see you next time.